Welcome back, everyone. Today on The Joseph Carlson Show, we have a tragic attack over the weekend from Hamas to Israel. Now Israel's responding with a barrage of attacks on Gaza. The leader of Israel saying that they're going to shut down Gaza. This is already a tragic conflict that is escalating by the day. We're going to be going over the facts so far, what we know about this conflict and which companies it may impact. Now, we also have some news that the activist investor, the hedge fund manager, Nelson Peltz, has boosted his stake into Disney. In fact, he's doubled down and he's doubled down again. He's increased his stake in Disney around five times. So he holds a lot of Disney and he wants a lot of change. He's seeking a board seat and he's seeking a lot of fundamental changes to the company Disney. We're gonna be going over his large concentrated bet into Disney and whether or not these changes will be good for the company. Now we also have an update on the crime rings that are stealing from retailers like Lowe's, Home Depot. In this case, Home Depot spent a lot of time tracking down a crime ring that was routinely stealing from them and they found what they call an unusual suspect. We'll be looking at who that unusual suspect is. And then finally, in my portfolio, one month ago, I came out with a video saying that I'm done buying. I basically said in this video that markets kept racing upwards, upwards more and more, and I wanted to just hold back and raise a little cash for a while. Well, since that video, the S&P 500 has dropped around 5%, in fact, a bit more than 5%. So now that the market has traded down a little bit and some companies have traded down even more, there are three companies in my portfolio that I've started buying. I spent $8,000 on three different stocks, and I'll be going over all three of them in this episode. So obviously we have a lot to get to in this episode. Let's go ahead and start off. Before we jump into the fundamentals of my portfolio and the companies that I've purchased, I wanna first look at the big news of the day. It seems like the landscape has shifted once again over the weekend. This time Hamas has attacked Israel with a large-scale unexpected attack. This was a failure by the Israel government in seeing this attack coming. They were blindsided by it. Hundreds of people have already died in the process, many of them being civilians. So Israel was attacked by a group called Hamas. They're designated as a terrorist group by the United States. They launched that initial attack from Gaza, and the Israeli government is now saying that there's no more fightings in town. They say, quote, there are no battles right now in the town, said a military spokesman. Quote, it is possible there are still terrorists in the area. The Israeli defense minister ordered a full siege on Gaza, which has already faced years of restrictions on movement and goods and people. Quote, there will be no electricity, food or fuel delivered to Gaza. Only three days in on this war and the toll has already been massive. In total, more than 700 Israelis have been confirmed dead. At least 493 Palestinians have been confirmed killed as well. And thousands have been wounded on each side. The scale of the conflict and its impact on the Middle East will likely be determined by Israel's response, the spread of violence on other Palestinian areas, and the potential involvement of the US and Iran. So this also could become a bigger proxy war, similar to what's going on with Ukraine right now, where countries not even directly involved in the fighting also play a big role. What's even made this more complex for the forces in Israel is that Hamas has taken a lot of hostages, including Americans, Europeans, and Asian nationals. This makes it more difficult for them to conduct war knowing that there's a lot of different hostages from around the world in Gaza. The whole situation is obviously complex and horrible, and it doesn't look like it's ending anytime soon. But that's what we know so far. Even though it looks like it's not slowing down anytime soon, we can hope that this does get under control quickly, that there's less lives lost in the process. Now, this also has an impact on a lot of companies that are home to Israel. In fact, Israel happens to be one of the bigger tech hubs 
There's a lot of technology companies that we use in the US every single day that are headquarters in Israel. Nice LTD is one of them. This company competes with Five9 and cloud computing software specifically for customer service. It's an $11 billion market cap tech company that has a huge presence in the US. Its headquarters is in Israel. Wix.com, which is one of the major competitors to Foursquare. This is a $5 billion market cap company. In fact, I've done an actual analysis on this company about a year back. This one is headquartered in Tel Aviv, which is one of the many cities that had radio siren for missiles. Monday.com is another tech company headquartered in Tel Aviv, Israel, with an $8.53 billion market cap. Now, you notice that these companies are selling down big time today. Investors are concerned about what's going to happen with them. I think that they'll be fine because most of them are at least far away from the the borders where they're getting the brunt of the attack, but it's still a scary situation. Now, in terms of my strategy and what I'm doing in response to this, I'm not changing my strategy at all. And I'm not looking for ways to make investments that profit off of the conflict. That's not something that I'm gonna be doing. The type of companies that I've recently purchased are ones that I would have purchased anyways, because there are already ones in my portfolio. I recently spent around half of my cash balance, around $8,000, on three different companies. So let's first look at company number one that I recently purchased. That was Intuit. I purchased $5,000 more of Intuit on Friday. I currently have a stake of $48,800 and $8,000 in the green. I believe Intuit's a high quality tech company that's deeply underappreciated by most retail investors. They look at it as basically a TurboTax company which it's not just a TurboTax company. Intuit has so many more verticals, so many more pathways of growth. Intuit sits at this busy intersection of so many different software verticals. They have CRMs, they have bill pay, they have credit, they have tax, they have small business, and they have HR. They basically have their hands in every part of small business in America. And this company's growing upstream and downstream in each of them. Now we know the company's financials already look incredible. They have fast growing revenues over the past five years. They've done many key acquisitions, but even while doing those acquisitions, they're growing their free cash flow dramatically. We can see the growth accelerate over the past five years. If we zoom in, this is what it looks like. From 2019 going from 2.17 billion, to now in 2022 going to 3.66 billion. Now they have had some increase in stock-based comp, and this is the reason that Terry Smith sold out of the company. But I don't believe this is a problem. The management knows that they've had an acceleration in expense, and they've said that revenue's going to outgrow their expenses over time. They've said that they needed this talent to build out on all of these verticals they operate in. So I believe the developers and the people that they acquired are going to help them build all of their future tools. And even while they have an increase in stock-based comp expense, they're still growing their free cash flow per share at a dramatic pace, 17% over the past five years. These high teens double-digit growth are incredibly fast. Most companies cannot sustain this for any amount of time. But Intuit's following the playbook of Adobe and Microsoft. Over the past four years, they have transitioned from a legacy, one-time install-based type of model to a subscription model. As they've made this transition, the numbers have exploded, similar to what we saw with Adobe back in 2013. Around 2013, Adobe made the brilliant move of transitioning to subscription model, making it so all of their products were wrapped into a service. That's called the Adobe Creative Cloud. You can see what happened with their economics. 
As they maintained a wide moat and changed their model to a better model, the economics exploded. They gained millions and millions of subscribers, and now instead of having lumpy one-time revenue, they had a recurring revenue every single month. I believe Intuit's following the same tried and true path, and I think they're gonna pull it off. Now, Intuit's stock price is already on a roll this year. It's up over 25% year to date, but it had a nice pullback over the past month. During this time period of me holding cash, it pulled back well over 5%, and I used that opportunity to buy a little bit more. So I increased my position in Intuit by $5,000, raising it up to one of the major holdings of my portfolio. It's now almost a $49,000 position, and this is a company that I plan to hold for many years. The next holding that I added to was Chipotle. Chipotle's in my restaurant category. This is one of the smaller positions in my portfolio, only a $22,000 position. It's currently $1,500 in the red. I recently bought into this company just a couple months ago. Now I've already gone over the thesis on Chipotle, but it's basically just a big burrito chain. It has great financials, great unit cost structure, and they're now developing technologies where they can automatically make you your burrito bowl with perfect proportions because they're now being made by a machine. This is in testing right now, but I firmly believe the future will be more automated than the past. That's typically what happens over time. These restaurant companies that operate with these razor thin margins, they can benefit greatly from automation. Chipotle is another company in my portfolio that's traded down a little bit over the past month. I recently just purchased another $2,000 of Chipotle. Now finally, the last company that I purchased in my portfolio is a railroad company. The railroad companies have received no love this year. All of them have been basically flat or down, and Canadian Pacific is no exception. This company traded further down over the past month. And this can be a case where if you're not careful, the price of a company can drive your sentiment. We could look at Canadian Pacific stock price, see that it's down 3% this year, and determine that something must be wrong. But when I do analysis on Canadian Pacific or Union Pacific, either one of them, I don't see anything wrong. Canadian Pacific has been a great company for a long period of time. With the acquisition of Kansas City Southern, it only increases their chances of outperformance. It gives them a bigger competitive advantage. They now have routes that go all the way from Mexico up through the US into Canada. This allows them to have better pricing and more convenience for their customer. It'll increase their cash flows over time. So when I track the fundamentals of this company and compare it with the stock price, I believe it's a great company that's going on sale. So I've purchased another $1,000 of Canadian Pacific, Kansas City Southern. And overall that makes up for $8,000 in purchases. Now I still left some cash and I'll continue to build cash over time with new deposits and dividends. So we'll see this balance grow. But if the market continues to sell off or if any company sells down in my portfolio based out of fair, I'll be eyeing those for future purchases and I'll let you know on this channel. So if you wanna follow consistent updates on my portfolio, just make sure you're subscribed. Now moving on. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI, it's possible we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder families have a lot going on let ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up like delicious lolly focus pops or lolly mellow pops for kids and for parents try three new brainy chews to help you focus chill out or get energized 
Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And we have some news specific to Disney. We know that this stock is struggling big time. And there's one investor that has not given up hope on Disney. His name is Nelson Peltz. He's an activist investor that has bought into the company about a year back. And at first he had a stake where he was buying in little by little, accumulating some shares of it. And then he also released this scathing letter to the management, basically highlighting everything that they did wrong, which at the time I openly applauded. I was happy to see that there was an outside investor calling Disney out for the many mistakes and fumblings they've had. They have not managed Disney well over the past year. And I appreciated that somebody would buy into Disney, call them out for their mistakes, and be a large critical voice on the management of Disney. Even if I didn't agree 100% with Nelson Peltz's criticisms, I just liked the fact that there was someone holding the management team accountable. In many cases, these managers like Bob Iger pay themselves tens of millions of dollars while the shareholder suffers. And that's what I've been seeing with Disney over the past couple of years. In fact, when we look at Disney's stock price, it is abysmal. It trades at $84 per share. To put that in perspective, year to date, it doesn't look so bad because it's only down 5%, but then we zoom out one year and it's down 11%, five years and it's down 25%. And then we go to the big one, the 10 year time horizon. This is long-term. The market has gone up tremendously over the past decade, but Disney's up a whopping 28%. 28% gains over 10 years is abysmal and it's especially abysmal for a company that has the incredible properties of Disney. So I believe that there is criticism due for Bob Iger who has been the one that's running Disney during this time period. Now if we look at the timeline here, we zoom out to the past five years, what happened was Nelson Peltz wrote his scathing letter to the Disney management team right around here. So the letter comes out at a low, Disney's stock price instantly goes up around 10 to 15%. And that is exactly when I exited my Disney stake at 113 per share. I thought that this was a good chance for me to get out of this position, minimize my losses, and move on to more predictable companies. I had personally owned Disney stock for a long period of time. I liked the company, I liked the assets, but I felt like I was becoming more and more frustrated with the management and the decisions they were making. I also believe with my initial analysis of Disney that I far underestimated the amount of competition Disney has. They have immense competition in everything they're doing, especially in sports with big tech. But regardless, this little bump in stock price right there was a direct result from Nelson Peltz, the activist investor creating some kind of attention and notice to the failings of Disney. Investors were excited about that. I bailed out at this point, but Nelson Peltz did not. He held on to Disney stock. Now, Disney stock has continued to trade down lower, going from 120 to 110 to $90 per share, now to the low $80 per share. Disney is on a long-term trajectory downward, and Nelson Peltz is still in it. In fact, he's not just in it, he's in it big time. Peltz thinks that Disney shares are significantly undervalued today and that the company needs a board that is more focused and aligned with shareholders and accountable. Now again, out of everything that Nelson Peltz says, you might take issue with his advice or you might say that Disney's already doing some of the things they suggest. That's true. 
Nelson Peltz's ideas aren't exactly original, but I believe the big thing that's lacking is accountability. The management team has really received no accountability for the massive failing that they've had over the past year. There's been nothing happening, no one pointing a finger, and I think it's valuable to have a large critical voice in the boardroom with Disney. So I'm in favor of having Nelson Peltz have people elected to the board that can be that large critical voice, somebody to hold them accountable to shareholders. And so far, no one else is putting up the money. Nelson Peltz has built up his stake in recent months to more than 30 million shares, a significant jump from the roughly 6.4 million shares. So he's about four and a half times his holding size. That puts the current stake at around $2.5 billion worth of Disney. Now that's not enough to give him instant control over Disney, but he does have some persuasion. He has some influence here. If the company says no, then Peltz could nominate directors that would be voted on in Disney's annual meeting next spring. The window for shareholder nomination goes from December 5th to January 4th. My expectations are for Disney to say no. I don't think they're going to be open to the criticism. I don't think they want anybody in their executive meetings and their boardroom telling them what to do. They'll say that Nelson Peltz doesn't know what he's talking about, that he doesn't understand the industry, and we have it all figured out. And I don't agree with Disney on this. Again, I believe it's incredibly important for shareholders, actual shareholders that own significant amount of the company, to have a say and hold the executives accountable. After all, shareholders are the owners of the company. And even more than accountability, I also agree with many of the things that Peltz has laid out in his requests. He's pointed out that Disney and their executives have excessive compensation and lack of expense discipline. Many of them are paying themselves tons of cash for mismanaging this company. Disney at the time said it continually refreshes its board with a focus on directors with industry experience and argued that Peltz didn't understand the media industry. The company also launched a succession plan committee to advise on Iger's replacement. Now, Iger has done a lot of things to try to reverse this stock decline. The first thing is he said he's going to get out of politics. He didn't say it that directly, but he said he wanted to reduce the noise surrounding political issues. That is Bob Iger's way of saying that Disney has been too openly political and they're taking a step back. They're also trying to get Disney Plus to achieve profitability faster and faster. Disney Plus and Hulu just recently increased their prices by more than 20% each. And then the big latest news from Disney is that they are going to invest an additional incremental $60 billion into their theme parks but the parks have been a consistent profit maker for the company. In fact, overall, when you look at Disney, the parks have been the crown jewel. So I don't believe there's anything wrong with them investing more into their best assets. I believe right now Disney's undervalued. I think the company can climb from this valuation with the right moves from management. And I agree with a lot of the arguments that Nelson Peltz makes. The reason that I will remain out of this stock is because one of the things that I've been looking at the most with my holdings is predictability. I wanna own companies that I'm incredibly confident that the outcome is highly predictable. And because Disney has proven to be so incredibly unpredictable over the past five years, it doesn't meet that high standard of predictability. So as of right now, even though I believe the company's undervalued, I think it will do well over the next couple of years, the level of unpredictability in this business causes me to stay out of it. Now, moving on, we get to this fascinating story that's on the subject of retail crime. We know that retail crime has been a growing problem over the past couple of months. We've gone over stories. In fact, I've been covering the subject 
of companies like Target saying that retail crime is taking out hundreds of millions of dollars of earnings. They could be paying this money as dividends to investors, dividends to people's 401k, but instead it's going to organized retail crime. Now, Home Depot has been dealing with this as well, and Home Depot has been tracking down a particular crime ring, and they say that they found an unusual suspect, and they're not lying about saying that it's an unusual suspect. For years, Robert Dell ran a drug recovery program on what is known as the Rock Community Church and Transformation Center in St. Petersburg, Florida. On the side, prosecutors say Dell also ran a organized retail crime ring. Now that's a bit incredible, and I suppose it's not too unexpected. In many cases, criminals lead these double lives. In fact, we see this all the time in media, in dramas. We have dramas like Breaking Bad, where the main character is a highly overqualified chemistry teacher and family man that seems like a good person on the surface, when in reality he gets wrapped up into a life of organized crime, creating crystal meth, and murder. This type of thing does happen. So it's crazy enough to see it in a story that you know as a drama, you know as actors playing it, but this type of thing happens in real life as well. In this case, it's Robert Dell running a drug recovery program while also operating an organized retail crime ring. The pastor had been working as a fence, the middleman buying stolen goods from thieves and reselling them for a profit. Dell was telling people who went to his drug recovery program to steal tools like drills and pin nailers from Home Depot stores all over Florida and drop them off at his home. Then he was using eBay, the account Anointed Liquidator. So he has these themes of being a pastor and then using the account Anointed Liquidator, where he sold $3 million worth of items online since 2016. Him and four other people, including his wife, were arrested after a seven-month investigation in which Home Depot collaborated with Florida law enforcement. He's now facing charges including racketeering, conspiracy to commit racketeering, and dealing in stolen property. Now, if you want to see his mugshot, there it is. It doesn't disappoint. So overall, I view this as a happy ending to the story. We have the bad guy going to jail, and this guy was a real scumbag, using the two-faced look of being a pastor to commit crimes, and then using a drug rehab facility in order to recruit people that are already struggling, people with drug challenges, using them as pawns to steal more merchandise. This guy was a horrible influence to a lot of people, and hopefully he goes to jail for a long period of time. Now, there's also news here in this report that retailers are taking a more aggressive stance against merchandise loss. And the thing that they try to go for the most, the key players in these operations are called the fence. They say the fence is crucial. The asset protection vice president of Home Depot says, quote, a successful organized retail crime organization has to have someone pulling the strings. That someone that's pulling the strings is the fence. The fence can obtain the supply of goods from boosters or people who are willing to steal for small cash payments or drugs and often provide them with lists of merchandise they want, according to authorities. Fences often turn to online marketplaces to unload the goods, but they can also look for buyers elsewhere. In some cases, they operate wholesale businesses that supply retailer marketplace with legitimately acquired goods as well as stolen goods. So a lot of the products that these other companies are buying are a mixture of legally acquired goods and stolen goods. But all of this is organized by a key player pulling the strings. That is the fence, and that is their primary target. And I like to see these retailers responding this way. I think with enough attention paid to this subject that we'll see a reduction in this growing problem. Now that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed and I'll see you in the next one.